It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. It's 11 o'clock on Saturday night in the UK, which means it's 7am in Tokyo on the final day of the 2020 Olympics. And with me, up bright and early, on his clock at least, to give us his take on this most extraordinary and unusual Olympics is Murad Ahmed, sports editor of the Financial Times. Good morning, Murad. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm all right, you know, still be swept along, sporting action and that kind of thing. Exactly, bleary-eyed, that's what an Olympics does to us. Actually, yes, bleary-eyed at either side of the world. So thanks for getting up so early for us. Has this been your routine throughout the Games, by the way? What, what are Japanese breakfasts like? Uh, well, because we're in the Olympics bubble, I haven't had an Olympics breakfast yet. I've been very much in the hotel buffet where I'm, I'm given a a pair of plastic gloves to pick up a tray to go on the most hygienic buffet possible. And that that's kind of been the experience of the Olympics. We've been cut off from the rest of Tokyo almost throughout. Um, right. and, uh, and, and it doesn't feel like the city is living the uh, Olympics experience at all. And neither do the thousands of delegates and media and everybody else who has actually got to see it live. Well, there are 6,000 journalists alone. Uh, attending the, the Tokyo Games, and and as as you say, you've been kind of, you know, bubbled away um, from from Tokyo. How has it compared to previous games that you've attended, and and you know, both in terms of atmosphere and in terms of, you know, w- what you've had to work with as a journalist? Uh, well, I've I've been to two Olympics as a spectator, and this is my second Olympics as a reporter, uh, and this is like you were saying, the strangest weirdest um olympics i've ever covered there is no atmosphere it's very uh it's very strange uh, being inside stadiums uh, and some of these stadiums are absolutely beautiful the the olympic Mm. stadium that's been built um in the middle of uh, tokyo replacing the old national stadium that was built for the 1964 olympics here uh is this kind of beautiful wooden structure but you can hear the sound of cicadas Tokyo's kind of everlasting sound essentially yeah. in the background while these great moments of sports are happening uh and you do feel a sense of almost survivor's guilt for it because uh we've we've been flown by our organizations at great expense but everything has been put on here by essentially the Japanese and the Japanese people and the Japanese taxpayer and they have mm. gotten the thing that they were promised was an ability to enjoy it, and they haven't had that. Um, and uh, that 
that's constantly felt wrong throughout uh, i have to say so even though the, the sport has been fantastic that that overhanging sense that the pandemics has has taken away from what is an olympic atmosphere has always been with us throughout as as a sports journalist have you have have you at least been able to think well perhaps we can concentrate on the actual sporting activity almost <laughs> at a forensic level now without you know being distracted by the roar of the crowd i mean quite a japanese thing you know to choose to choose stillness and calm and quiet well i have to say no uh, only because <laughs> you know we're just so used to you know operating with with great noise but i, I just think if the olympics is anything that we can all relate to is the sense of the world coming together but it is also mm. the sense of the world going somewhere to do that um and it is impossible to get away from um the lack of crowds and some of the sights you see i mean one of the mo- most heartbreaking things i saw was you get ushered into buses the whole time uh, yeah. which take you from venue to venue that you can't go you, in the first 14 days we were here you could not leave this bubble and uh, people would line up outside the barriers to um, stadiums and wave at you uh, mm-hmm. as you were going past because they saw this official bus and they thought you were an athlete of some sort so I had a tiny Japanese child no no older than my daughter at home looking up at the bus and waving at me and I just thought this is this is wrong this is really wrong I, I have to say the thing I told my editors before we got here is the story that would dominate in the lead up is uh is COVID of course it will but I mm. always said that once it got going we would want stories about the sport itself and that is exactly how it's played out it the sport has been fantastic and we've seen that throughout the pandemic when 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 football and everything else has got going and people do get distracted by what's on the pitch but um that sense of loss is 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 not going to go away we're recording this uh, for you at the start of the final day of competition. Um, Team GB look likely to finish in fifth place with between 64, maybe 67 medals if they get lucky today, including 20 golds. The initial target was between 45 and 70 medals. They're probably not going to beat the record of 67 from Rio. How do you think Britain is going to look back on this games as uh, as a project from a sporting perspective in terms of in terms of achievement and progress? Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, I always uh, and I've been writing into copy that they haven't set a medals target this time, not a proper one, mm. as they have in previous years, and that's partly to do with the sense that set, setting that medals target, which was linked to funding of sports. Um, was putting undue pressure on athletes, and there have been a number of bullying scandals um, across a number of Olympic sports uh, that that related essentially to coaches feeling like they they were under incredible pressure to uh, that they relayed onto athletes to to secure money and jobs and uh, and things like that. This is the stuff that people don't want to hear when they're listening mm. to the kind of the BBC commentary and the kind of cheerleading that goes on. I have to say, I'm incredibly grateful not to be watching it um, uh, because I find it incredibly, incredibly parochial that we are, uh, from my understanding, we were obsessing with modern pentathlon for the last couple of days, which seems like a uh, an odd way of covering the world's greatest sporting event. Um, so, from a Brit, from a British perspective. Look, what has happened over the last few Olympic Games is a ruthless targeting of medals. Uh, money 
spent on dozens, like, uh, I, I think in the run-up to Tokyo, around £350 million of taxpayer money and national pro- uh, lottery proceeds, more money than has ever been spent on Olympic sports, on a few dozen medal hopefuls, which mm. has gone into collecting, like, like you were saying, 60-odd medals. And if that makes you feel proud, that's great. <laughs> I mm. personally think that it's an odd way of spending money. I, I, I think this obsession with Team GB is slightly strange, given up that I, I grew up watching the Olympics in an era where, you know, one gold medal in Atlanta was uh, obviously terrible to, uh, to watch from a home perspective, but it meant that you did focus on all the other stuff that was going on. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, Great Britain is is an Olympic superpower. It's very clear that's the case. Uh, whenever you turn up to anything, there's always a British athlete in and around um, a chance of a medal, and usually in in the ones I've seen, getting medals. There have been some. I, I think there've been some really great moments for for the Brits and slightly more unexpected ones. I went to the uh, BMX racing uh, where mm. Bethany Shriver and Kai White won medals. I don't think those were completely expected. Britain have have spent a lot of money on cycling, but BMX was the last discipline that Britain hadn't won a gold medal. And that, those I felt genuinely were uplifting and I couldn't help but punch the air a little bit then. Um, but I, I think we're starting to see some of this power even out. Um, the, Britain had a, a poor regatta in, uh, in rowing. Um, in the velodrome, which they've completely dominated, it seemed like other countries had, had caught up, uh, technologically at least. Um, so I, I think we are all going to have to have a conversation with ourselves. Are we going to continue with this in this vein of pumping so much money into the very top level of uh, Olympics sports because every four years or five years in, the, in, in, in this case, uh, we want to have a party and um, watch the BBC relentlessly and, and and check on the medal count. Yeah, I mean it's it's becoming more and more widely said that you know, Britain has you know great medal performance in Olympics and terrible participation in sports in the country at large. That we're kind of putting all of our uh, resources into into as you say tens and indeed hundreds of millions of pounds of uh, funding. Um, in, into elite sports, do you think there's like do you think there's likely to be consequences, say for for rowing after you know they just had their worst game in games in forty nine years? Is are they likely to see funding withdrawn? That's really difficult to say because if you take uh, the the kind of the British Olympic authorities at their word, they have said we are moving in a different direction. We are less focused on the medal count. We are more mm. fo- focused on athlete welfare. And squaring that circle means you've got to keep funding sports, which are traditional British strengths, um, and allow a different culture to build up within those sports. Um, which, which is what you know um, is being said by people like Andy Anson, who's the, who's the British Olympic Association's chief executive. But if you if we still think that we're going to pump in quite so much money in the in the search of glory uh, at an Olympic Games, then you still have to target some of these sports where there are just a lot of medals available. There are a lot of rowing medals available. There are a lot of cycling medals available. So you do have to end up concentrating your money towards the, towards a handful even of Olympic sports in the hope of a kind of racking up um, a good medal count. If you still want that 
as a goal. I, d- I can't see rowing, sailing, and s- cycling getting any less money in, into the future. It is actually a, a kind of a top-down decision. You know, it, it's a kind mm. of quasi-government body and the government who who make those decisions. And uh, it, so it's kind of up to Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson to decide that it, it was it's worth the it's worth the cash i I mean we weren't sure that tokyo i I remember covering this we weren't sure that tokyo was going to get the funding that we um for the british team uh, that it did but george osborne made a a let's say patriotic decision to um push uh, push cash towards the british team so um uh, i i guess we'll see but i i do think the only way to see how the medal count plays out is is really how much cash get gets sent um, to these uh, Olympic sports. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How do you feel great on vacation? Like, really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Murad, you you mentioned athlete welfare. One of the standout stories was obviously Simone Biles pulling out of uh, most of her events to focus on her mental health. Around the same time, elsewhere in sport, you know, swimmer Adam Peaty, creator Ben Stokes have have also, uh, you know, withdrawn from events. Around Simone Biles, we had a really unpleasant spectacle of armchair social media fans berating her for not having what it takes you know people who are literally mm. sitting on their armchairs tapping away on their ipads do you, mm. do you think that this games is going to have uh consequences positive consequences for the understanding of of, of mental health in sport yeah I, I i thought it was the biggest moment of the games i was i was in the gymnastics arena um when that happened uh you know i was sitting next to a colleague ready to uh, um explain the brilliance of Simone Biles because I'd, 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 mm-hmm. I've followed her in, in Rio and I'd, and I was very much, I've, I've been writing about her in the, in the lead up to that event and something was very, very clearly wrong. She gave an extraordinary, um, it wasn't quite a press conference. Um, it's basically the media scrum afterwards where yeah. she, she explained everything. And I, I, actually what she was describing about wasn't strict, it wasn't mental health in the way that, the discussion has kind of expanded from there. And I think that's where some of the disconnect and some of the kind of social media warriors who, who've gone after her have, have not quite understood. She was talking about something incredibly specific. She called it the twisties, which is a gymnastics term where her mind and body were no longer connecting. She was no longer aware of where she was when she's spinning in the air. And she took herself out with great self-awareness and grace, I thought. Um mm of the firing line because she couldn't be sure that she would land on her feet. Um, and right. that's what, that's what gone on. And this is, uh, and what was really interesting is that if you, 
ignored. I'm not even going to mention the names of these idiots um, who mm. were going after her because none of them were sports people, it seemed to me. But if you mm. follow gymnasts on Twitter, they were all sharing their stories of this particular phenomenon. And they were saying, you know, it lasts one, one or two weeks. Um, and they were sharing videos of, of them kind of falling flat on their faces, on but on, you know, soft mats rather than... Yeah. Uh, on uh, on a hard floor uh, in an Olympic stadium. So uh, I think it was really important for the wider public to understand that these are these performers are humans and not machines and performance issues can um, can crop up and derail even even the greatest. I don't think so. anybody will deny really anyone who understands sport that Simone Biles it remains the greatest gymnast of all time. Um, but I think we are starting to have a much better understanding that these are human beings who can be affected by uh, other things um, away from sport. Yeah. I mean, other standout stories, but perhaps more encouraging, more positive, is that people were able to, you know, sort of, you know, to take stands at this Olympics in a, in a way that we haven't often seen lately. Tom, Tom Daly used his press conference to send a message of support for young LGBT people. The US shot boards of Raven Saunders performed a quite powerful protest on the on the podium after winning a silver medal. You know, despite the IOC's best efforts, protest and politics to actually managed to get in uh, and, and onto the agenda this time. Um, do you think, why does the IOC find it so difficult to accept that this is kind of intrinsic to sport now, that sport is about taking a stand as well as performing? So um, I spoke to Thomas Bach, uh, the president of the um, International Olympic Committee before the game started, and this was the main topic that we had. And he, he made a he made a point of saying that that he didn't want to see protests on the podium. So the the IOC relaxed a load of rules around freedom of speech for athletes. Essentially, um, you know, you can say what you want on social media, uh, in press conferences. You can, um, but they didn't want it to happen on the podium or the field of play. Uh, also, mm. privately, other people within the IOC said they have no way of enforcing this. So, as you, the cases <laughs> that you you've uh, you've brought up have happened, and and there hasn't been uh, pushback really uh, from the IOC. But they they don't want it because they see themselves as as you know genuinely global and uh, and supposedly part of the sport. And what they really worry about is less of a case of Raven Saunders and more a case of, you know, two countries that are on the edge of war and somebody stand, you know, stands on the yes. podium and makes a political gesture, uh, which kind of sparks something much bigger. And, that, and that's the kind of weird mindset they get into. And they really struggle when there are causes, which even within the IOC, they can, they, they want to support things like, um, equality uh, on uh, sexual orientation and and anti-racism stances these are things that they quietly would like to support but feel like they they can't it's a it's a very odd organization it's odd mm. that they have to inflict these things on on everyone else but i i've also enjoyed the fact that athletes feel like they they've um they can have a voice and say what they want they will continue to be attacked because that's the kind of the world that we live in but um, at least they have the platform to uh, to do those things. So, what did you make of of the Belarusian sprinter Kristina Timonovskaya um, mm. refusing orders to fly home from the Olympics? That she's now in Poland on a humanitarian visa, having effectively, you know, fled the Belarusian Olympic team. I mean, that was the that was the political um, furore of the games, wasn't it? It was, and 
I can remember that one distinctly as well because that story broke just after um, an astonishing men's hundred meter final when a random Italian came from nowhere to to win yeah. <laughs> to to win the marquee race of any Olympics. Um, uh, but shortly after that, you know, I, I I start getting messages popping up on my phone saying you need to uh, investigate the whereabouts of a Belarusian sprinter um, and. Uh, I think this is one of the cases where it shows how the IOC is in a really difficult position when it comes to politics and sport. Simnaskaya is among the athletes uh, who have complained of the situation in Belarus. Um, and, uh, and what had happened prior to the Games is Alexander Lukashenko, the kind of dictatorial leader of Belarus, after a, a fraudulent election in that a presidential election in that country, had had a crackdown on all dissent, including mm. uh, including athletes. Uh, athletes had complained in the country of um, of imprisonment and harassment. Uh, the IOC had banned Lukashenko from coming to these Olympics and a load of officials uh, because of these cases. So there was form leading up to the mm. Olympic Games. Simonskaya had complained about her coaches uh, basically cl- com- claiming incompetence on their part. She's a sprinter in the 100 and 200 meters. Um, she had been inserted at the last minute into the four, four by 400 minute, uh, meter relay, something that she's no expertise at uh, because um, other athletes had not done enough of the doping test required to come to the games so suddenly she was kind of thrown into the mix of something that she was uncomfortable with she complained it appears as though she was uh told to go home she was scared um it it took the ioc days to really start a formal investigation although they did uh, appear to kick out the two coaches that were involved in uh, in this case um and it just shows you that the Olympics does become a place where national issues get highlighted in, in a way that you, you can't anywhere. And it is the world watching. And uh, mm. guy really, you know, she gave a press conference in, in Poland on, on arriving and she told her fellow compatriots, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to speak up. And, and that is the power of the Olympics platform. The world's media really cared about what she was saying in a way that they wouldn't have in any other situation. But... Um, I'm glad she's safe. I understand that, the, yeah. you know, it's it's her it's her family now that she's worried about, and um, and hopefully these stories don't disappear once once the kind of the circus and the roadshow moves on. Yeah. Just before we wrap up, one of the weirdest sites in the games was the the Russian Olympic Committee, mm. or not Russia. Yes. Has Russia successfully made fools of the IOC's doping regime then by just? going out under a different name depends if you think there's a doping regime uh, within the olympics <laughs> um if if you think that what you've been watching is clean sport um you have not been watching the history of the olympics and that that goes way beyond russia um but on on the russia particular case so there have been revelations of this state-sponsored uh doping regime that came out in 2015 um which russia have always denied but have been independently verified by multiple different agencies now and um and the fallout from that 
in 2019 was that another ban was int- introduced for these games and the, and the next games in uh, winter games in Beijing, um, which is related to the manipulation of, of data. Essentially, they were still messing with the uh, uh, anti-doping data even even after all this time. So the ban meant that the symbols of the Russian state couldn't appear at the game. So that meant no flag, no anthem. The interpretation of the ban by the IOC has been, let's say, minimal. Um, mm. the, the uniforms have featured the 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 um, the the, uh, the 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 colours of the Russian flag. The flag that is shown when um, Russians do win is a flame in the Russian colours on top of the <laughs> uh, Olympic rings. The music that was agreed to be played is Tchaikovsky's Pianic Concerto Number no. 1. Uh, it, like you say, the team is called the Russian Olympic Committee. Vladimir Putin has been sending congratulatory telegrams to, uh, to all uh, Russian Olympic champions. In reality, what I think this is, is the very tepid end of a fight that has been going on for years between Russia and global sports authorities. Uh, no one is is willing to continue this fight any longer in a way that is meaningful. And that's what's played out um, uh, here. Uh, it, it, it does, I think it tells you very much that the Russian tactics on, on this have worked. They mm. therefore a rear guard where they've denied that there's been any problem and managed to maintain their place within uh, within global sports. And uh, what it means for clean sport is that um, you know, like I say, anyone watching can uh, can take with a relative pinch of salt uh, that anti-doping authorities will be able to either keep sport clean or enforce strong punishments when there are clear cases of um, of, uh, of doping going on. I seem to remember that it's traditional for the IOC to describe every Games as the best ever, with, with very few exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, through no fault of the Japanese, who've obviously been dealt a terrible hand there, is that going to be possible this time? They've been trying. I mean, mm. Thomas, Thomas Bach gave an incredibly tone-deaf press conference towards the end of these Games saying that it, it's barely been noticeable, you know, the sport has been so great, it's barely been noticeable that there's no spectators. I, I don't think anyone can go away and say these have been the greatest games because of the, the circumstances that they, yeah. they've been held in. It, 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 I, I think it is incredibly sad um, that the Japanese have put on this event um, without the ability to really share in it. We've seen some re- like j- really awful sights from my perspective the the kind of the urban sports park where a lot of the new sports like skateboarding and and bmx freestyle have been taking place takes place Mm. where there's a bridge uh that can overlook it and the bridge has been absolutely packed of people in the midday sun um trying to get a glimpse of the action um shut out of it entirely um now uh, the other thing is, like polls say that the the general mood in the country is against the Olympics and has been throughout, and that Japanese success in the medal count, we, we don't actually know if that's helped. But I'd, I I think this has definitely been the weirdest games. Uh, yeah. It's and it's um, it's been memorable, and I will go away with a huge 
a huge amount of stories um, as a as a result um, of it. But I, I think it, it's not at all what the Olympics Games were at its best is is supposed to be. Just to finish off, then, what has been your? I mean, amidst all the weirdness and all the, all the, the disappointment and the, and the sadness for the Japanese who wanted it to be an amazing game, what has, what has been your favourite moment of the sport? What you've seen um, of the sport itself? Uh, I was in the stadium when Carsten uh, Warholm, uh, Norwegian runner, won the four hundred meter hurdles in absolutely blazing conditions where. Uh, of the eight runners, th- the first three all went inside the existing world record. Six of the run- uh, runners broke national records. It was astonishing to watch them kind of power over the line. He ripped open his shirt on yes. the finish line. <laughs> it, it, I mean, that is what you want to. That that's the yeah. sort of experience that you want to have. Um, they came down into the to talk to the media afterwards and trash talked each other and complimented each other in equal measure. It, it was fantastic, you know, um, fantastic rivalry, uh, incredible sport. That that one really stood out to me um, as, as the thing that I will I'll take away forever and think, well, I I really watched one of the greatest races in Olympic history. Uh, throughout, there were there were moments like that of of sporting transcendence. Um, which you can't avoid because these people have been um, really have been training for five years and and completely um, uh, completely dedicated their lives. The one thing I would say about being in completely empty stadiums watching this is that you can't miss the the full focus is on the athletes and you don't miss those moments. It isn't drowned out by the sound. You absolutely see the raw emotion. You see these these people collapse on the finish line. Uh, what they actually go through and you and, and you hear it live it's really, uh, and all of that has been an incredible privilege amazing but let's not do it again like this uh, let's hope so but i i know that the the french are out here shadowing um uh the japanese before the the paris games and they uh they are sort of planning for some sort of there will be restrictions they think for right. for many years to come so let's not but I'm not necessarily sure that the world we're currently living is going to disappear just yet. Murad Ahmed, thank you for getting up early to talk to us. What's in your final day? Uh, I've either got a women's volleyball final or uh, buying souvenirs for family. I haven't quite decided which which I'll do. But I, 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 have, I, I do have to write a piece now uh, summing up the game. So this has been useful. Oh, good. Well, they, well, you heard it here first then. Fantastic. <laughs> Maura, thank you so much. It's, it's always always good to get your insight. I'm absolutely fascinating and I hope you enjoy your, your last day um, in Japan. Listeners, thank you for listening. Um, don't forget, you can fund our grassroots programme in the growing sports of podcasting. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to support us and keep us going in the marathon that entails getting you a new podcast every morning. Uh, Morad's off to look for souvenirs around Tokyo. I'm off to bed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovic, and the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>